0: Welcome to the Grenzone, Dissecting Dermatology Differently. Here's your host, Dr. Logan Kolb.
1: Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. So today we will start our long journey through the reaction patterns and start with a bread and butter topic in dermatology, psoriasis. If you haven't already, make sure to check out my interview with Dr. Gropper in the last episode to give yourselves an orientation to reaction patterns for rashes and lesions. Since psoriasis is such a broad, important topic for us to know, I'm going to break it into two episodes. Before getting into part one, I will start with a quick overview of the reaction patterns. I'll do this for every episode, that way you get enough repetition to cement this information into your foundation for approaching rashes and lesions. But before we do, I have to mention our disclaimer, that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. We break our reaction patterns into five main categories. Papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesicobullus. The first category that we'll go through are papulosquamous disorders, which refers to rashes with scaly papules and plaques, since the papulo of papulosquamous refers to papules and plaques, while squamous refers to the scale. We further break papulosquamous rashes into five broad categories. 1. Psoriasiform, which resembles psoriasis 2. Pitoriasiform, which resembles pitoriasis rosea 3. Lichenoid, resembling lichen planus 4. Annular, such as tinea corporis, and 5. Erythroderma, which has many causes that we'll go into. Today we'll discuss the prototype for psoriasiform disorders, psoriasis. The other psoriasiform rashes in the differential that we'll discuss in later episodes include seborrheic dermatitis, mycosis fungoides, small and large plaque parasoriasis, and pityriasis rubra pilaris. So let's talk psoriasis a bit before we go through a scenario of seeing a patient with psoriasis along with Dr. Grumpypants, or Dr. G as I like to call him. I know you're not tuning in for a history lesson, but I find the history behind some of these derm conditions to be fascinating. As clinicians in present day, we really stand on the shoulders of giants for how we've come to understand diseases like psoriasis and how to treat them. People have had psoriasis in every other disease we learn about in medical school for hundreds and thousands of years. Thankfully, we're no longer accusing the mothers of kids with epilepsy of being witches. But what happened to these poor patients with severe psoriasis back in the day? The earliest documentation of psoriasis was around biblical times, where psoriasis was misdiagnosed as leprosy and these people were sent to leper colonies where, guess what, they actually ended up getting leprosy. It took until the 1800s for psoriasis to finally be distinguished from leprosy. Until the early 1900s, psoriasis was thought of mainly as a hyperproliferative disorder. Then the use of cyclosporin for transplant patients came around, and when these patients' psoriasis improved, it showed us that the immune system is definitely involved. In the second psoriasis episode, we will talk all about this immunology and what we currently know about it. But first, let's talk some basics on psoriasis. It is a very common condition affecting 1 in 50 people, and classically presents as well-circumscribed, dry, erythematous plaques with silvery scale on the extensor elbows and knees, trunk. Scalp, umbilicus, and sacrum. Sometimes it localizes only to the hands and feet as well, and oftentimes there are changes in the nails that can help clinch your diagnosis. Besides affecting the skin and nails, psoriasis has several comorbidities, including psychiatric, musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, and renal changes. As dermatologists, we are the experts in treating these patients, so we have to know psoriasis inside and out because it affects our patients inside and out. We are lucky to have amazing treatments at our disposal that can help clear patients' skin and prevent some of these comorbidities as well. It is incredibly rewarding to take care of these psoriasis patients. So who gets psoriasis and what causes it? First, it has a bimodal onset with peaks in patients' 20s and 50s, but remember that it can present at any age from neonates to the elderly. 75% of cases start in patients less than 40 years old. As far as the cause of psoriasis, we believed it is caused by environmental triggers in patients with a genetic predisposition. This leads to rapid proliferation of keratinocytes and an activated immune system. Again, we will discuss the immunology behind psoriasis in the next episode, where we also discuss treatment in detail. Something you might get asked by patients or attendings like Dr. Grumpy Pants might be
0: Take a break from staring at that vexatious device your generation calls a phone and tell me some triggers for psoriasis.
1: I like mnemonics, so I apologize if you don't. But one that helps me remember the triggers for psoriasis is SICK LAB. The S stands for stress and smoking. I've had patients with moderate to severe psoriasis that got at least 50% better by quitting a stressful job or by quitting smoking. The eye in sick lab stands for infection and refers to the association between group A strep, or upper respiratory infections, and guttate, or raindrop-shaped psoriasis. Ever wonder when you see a prescription for eye drops and the units are GTTS? Well, that comes from the Latin for gutte, or for Spanish speakers gotas, which means drops. So that's where the name guttate psoriasis comes from. The C in the sick lab mnemonic stands for hypocalcemia, which can trigger generalized pustular psoriasis. The K stands for kebnerization, which is a phenomenon where trauma to the skin, such as scratching, surgical excisions, sunburns, or even tattoos can induce new psoriasis lesions at that site. The kebner phenomenon is seen in about 25% of patients, and lesions take two to six weeks to develop after the inciting trauma.
0: Ah, the Kebner phenomenon. Big words for a simpleton such as yourself. So can you tell me three other disorders that exhibit Kebnerization?
1: How about lichen planus, nitidus, and vitiligo? The lab in the sick lab mnemonic for psoriasis triggers refers to medications that can induce psoriasis. The L is for lithium, the A is for both antimalarials and ACE inhibitors, and B stands for beta-blockers. Some other medications that don't fit into the mnemonic include calcium channel blockers, NSAIDs, and believe it or not, the TNF-alpha inhibitors, which are commonly used to treat psoriasis as well. Another trigger that isn't in the mnemonic is alcohol use. So to summarize our psoriasis triggers, the mnemonic is LAB, which stands for stress, smoking, infections, the C is for hypocalcemia, K for kevnerization, and LAB refers to lithium, Antimalarials and ACE inhibitors, and beta blockers. And don't forget there are other meds like calcium channel blockers, NSAIDs, and TNF alpha inhibitors that are not in the mnemonic, along with alcohol use. Since we believe psoriasis is caused by environmental triggers in genetically predisposed people, let's quickly talk about the genes involved. There are psoriasis susceptibility genes known as SOAR-S1-9, through 9, with SOAR-S1 being the most important. There are also multiple HLA associations. Remember that HLAs A, B, and C are the genes that make MHC class 1 on nucleated cells, while HLA DR, DP, and DQ encode for MHC class 2 proteins on antigen-presenting cells.
0: What are the HLA associations with psoriasis? And when I say HLA, I'm not referring to some failed professional sports league.
1: The HLA associations with psoriasis include HLA-CW-6, which is present in 90% of early-onset psoriasis patients and 50% of late-onset cases. HLA-B-27 can be associated with sacroiliitis-associated psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and pustular psoriasis. If one parent has psoriasis, studies show that there's a 15% chance that their child will have it. If both parents are affected, the risk is 40%. And then in twin studies, identical twins had a two to three times higher risk than fraternal twins.
0: Congratulations, troubled child. You've memorized a few numbers, but it doesn't make up for the fact that your dermatologic knowledge is completely and utterly lacking. So when you're on rotation with Dr. G
1: and he says,
0: I don't know what I have to gain from asking you this, but it's the end of the day and I suppose I'm feeling compassionate. So I'll give you one more chance. What causes psoriasis? You tell him,
1: we think of psoriasis as a systemic disease with increased inflammation, which is due to triggers that affect a genetically predisposed person. So in your head, you remember the sick lab mnemonic and then tell him, some of these triggers include stress, smoking, infections causing guttate psoriasis, hypocalcemia, which can cause generalized pustular psoriasis, and any trauma leading to the Kevner phenomenon. And then we have medications such as lithium, antimalarials, ACE inhibitors, and beta blockers, along with calcium channel blockers and, paradoxically, TNF-alpha inhibitors. When these triggers affect a genetically predisposed person with the SOAR-S1 gene, or HLA-CW6 or HLA-B27, this leads to keratinocyte proliferation and an activated immune system, which causes what we see as psoriasis.
0: Alright, you want to play? Let's play.
1: So let's go through the clinical findings of psoriasis in the skin, nails, and joints before we go see a pretend patient with Dr. Grumpy Pants. Starting with the skin, we classically see psoriasis as erythematous plaques with a silvery scale on the extensor elbows, knees, trunk, scalp, umbilicus, and sacrum. Although these are the common locations, you can see it just about anywhere depending how bad it is. Psoriasis is very common on the scalp and can coexist with seborrheic dermatitis, which some refer to as sebo psoriasis. There are several variants of psoriasis that are also worth mentioning. Guttate psoriasis presents as numerous raindrop-shaped red scaly papules and plaques in the younger patients two to three weeks after a strep infection or upper respiratory infection. Palmoplantar psoriasis refers to chronic, thick, painful plaques and fissures on the palms and soles. Inverse psoriasis affects the intertriginous areas of the ears, axilla, inframammary areas, groin, and intergluteal crease. Then there's erythrodermic psoriasis, which affects greater than 80-90% to of the body surface area. And lastly, we have generalized pustular psoriasis, which comes in two flavors, one being impetigo herpetiformis, which occurs in pregnancy, and the second called von Zumbusch pattern of generalized pustular psoriasis which has a rapid onset with fevers and subsequent sterile pustules around the nails, palms, and edges of plaques that are often itchy and painful. Remember that this von Zumbusch pattern of generalized pustular psoriasis is associated with systemic steroid withdrawal, which is why prednisone is typically not given to patients with psoriasis, and we need to educate our friends in primary care and urgent care not to be tempted to give these patients steroids, especially the dose packs. These lead to short-term relief but long-term sequelae. As mentioned earlier, pustular psoriasis is also associated with hypocalcemia, which is the C in our sick lab mnemonic for psoriasis triggers. Next let's discuss psoriatic nail changes, which are seen in 10-80% to of patients depending on the study you read. Psoriasis more commonly affects the fingernails over the toenails, Remember that our nails are just an extension of the skin, so chronic skin diseases like psoriasis or lichen planus will often affect the nails. Some of the changes we see in psoriasis include onycholysis, irregular pitting, oil spots, splinter hemorrhages, and subungual hyperkeratosis. Pitting refers to pinpoint depressions in the nail. These pits are irregular or haphazardly arranged in psoriasis, which contrasts with the regular pitting seen in alopecia areata in lichen planus. Onycholysis refers to the loosening or separation of the distal nail plate from the nail bed, which appears white when you look at the distal nail. Oil spots refer to dark yellow areas of the nail due to subungual hyperkeratosis. And remember, psoriasis can also form splinter hemorrhages, so don't automatically associate these splinter hemorrhages with endocarditis. These nail changes can be important clues for making the diagnosis of psoriasis, but you won't see them unless you get in the habit of looking at these patients' nails. Next, let's talk psoriatic arthritis before we join Dr. Grumpy Pants in clinic. It can present in up to 30% of psoriasis patients, especially if they have moderate to severe disease. Psoriatic arthritis is more likely if the nails and scalp are affected. Patients will often complain of morning stiffness for greater than one hour, which usually affects the hands and feet. You may get asked.
0: What are the five variants of psoriatic arthritis?
1: We break psoriatic arthritis into five main variants that I will briefly mention. One, oligoarthritis with swelling and tenosynovitis of the hands, which makes up 60-70% to of cases. Remember that oligo means few, so it affects a few hand joints. 2. Asymmetric distal interphalangeal joint, a.k.a. the DIP joint, with nail damage. 3. Rheumatoid arthritis-like. 4. Arthritis mutilans, which is the rarest and the most severe form. And 5. Ankylosing spondylitis, which is also associated with HLA-B27. Probably more important than being able to recite these five types of psoriatic arthritis is being able to differentiate psoriatic arthritis from rheumatoid and osteoarthritis. So here's some pearls. Psoriasis usually affects the PIPs and DIPs but spares the MCPs. Again, psoriasis usually affects the PIPs and DIPs but spares the MCPs. However, rheumatoid arthritis affects the MCPs and the PIPs but usually spares the DIPs. So again, remember psoriasis spares the MCPs while rheumatoid arthritis spares the DIPs. Then remember that osteoarthritis can affect all three of these joints. It's important for us to identify psoriatic arthritis early because deformities such as the pencil in the cup erosions can be prevented with adequate treatment. It's also important to be aware of other psoriasis musculoskeletal changes including enthesitis spelled E-N-T-H-E-S-I-T-I-S, enthesitis, which refers to inflammation at tendon insertion sites on the bone. Enthesitis classically occurs at the Achilles insertion site, and it's present in 20% of psoriasis patients. Then there's also dactylitis, or swelling of the fingers, present in 15-30% to of psoriasis patients. I know we've covered a lot, but let's pretend we're in clinic with Dr. Grumpy Pants and put some of this together. Dr. G tells you,
0: Go see the new patient in room 7 while I check on my stock portfolio. The MA gives you the chart and says, Listen, kid. This is Mr. Snuffleupagus. He's had psoriasis for 45 years. He just wants a refill on his creams. You don't need to get a 30-minute history. Get him in, get him out, so I can go have a cigarette.
1: You introduce yourself to the patient and ask to take a quick look at the patient's skin before going into your history. In dermatology, we should almost refer to it as getting a physical in history rather than an H&P because laying eyes on the rash first will help us direct our questioning. You then go into your typical OPQRST questions and ask about onset of the rash, progression since onset, previous treatments, etc. Next, you remember the sick lab mnemonic and ask about the triggers for psoriasis. Are you under more stress? Do you smoke? Have you been sick lately? Any trauma to your skin at all, like sunburns? I've personally had erythrodermic psoriasis patients that got that way because they were trying to vigorously scrape the scale off their plaques with a wire brush, but were instead kebnerizing their whole body with psoriasis. Next, look at the patient's med list and see if they're using lithium, ACE inhibitors, antimalarials, or beta blockers. Next, you ask a review of systems specific to psoriasis patients. Do you have joint pain? If yes, is there morning stiffness for longer than an hour? Do you have tendon pains, such as your Achilles or at your elbow? How has your mood been? A lot of patients have depression to go with their psoriasis, so it's important that we look after the whole patient and not just their skin. Then, if the patient is obese, as they often are with psoriasis, taking time to discuss diet and exercise is always important. Then we go into our physical exam. You want to do a thorough head-to-toe exam, as we discussed in our second episode. Patients may have psoriasis in their scalp that they weren't aware of. If the diagnosis is unclear, look in the patient's mouth. They may have changes pointing to a different diagnosis, such as Wickham striae that are present in lichen planus. Don't forget to look at the patient's nails for onycholysis, pitting, and oil spots. While you're there, assess the hands for signs of psoriatic arthritis by looking for obvious deformities, testing flexion and extension, and feeling for tenderness to palpation. Don't forget to offer to examine the genitals, because many patients will have lesions on the penis or vulva, but will mention them only if you ask. After you've looked everywhere, take note of the patient's affected surface area, using a couple of tools to estimate this. 1. The palmar surface of the patient's hand, including their fingers, is roughly 1% surface area for them. Or 2. The rule of nines used for burn patients. And as a side note, you may have heard of the auspit sign which refers to pinpoint bleeding that occurs when you remove a psoriatic plaque. This occurs because dilated blood vessels in the papillary dermis get exposed when you peel off the scale. While the auspice sign can be helpful, it's not usually done clinically unless you like torturing your patients. So there's a good thorough physical and history of a psoriatic patient. You go and find Dr. Grumpypants sipping coffee and you present the patient.
0: Is there a reason you're staring at me while I'm sitting in my office? You mention the
1: basic history of the patient's psoriasis, treatments he's tried, any triggers that you think need to be addressed, and any complaints of joint pain or enthesitis. You mention your physical exam findings, including body surface area, nail changes, or any other positive joint findings. This patient has about 15% body surface area that's affected, and some morning stiffness in his finger joints. Dr. G decides to order some biologic screening labs, some plain x-rays of the patient's hands and then treats the patient with Triamcinolone until his next follow-up visit in a week, where you will discuss the results and treatment options. And that's where this episode will end and the next will begin, discussing diagnosis and treatment of psoriasis patients. I want to end today's episode with a quote. Winners visualize the rewards of success. Losers visualize the penalties of failure. In my classic style, I want to repeat it one more time. Winners visualize the rewards of success, losers visualize the penalties of failure. This quote was actually in a fortune cookie that I ate the first week of my residency, and it couldn't have been more timely. We all need to stop our negative self-talk, because the more you tell yourself something isn't going to go right, the more likely that penalty of failure becomes true. I think about when I played baseball, if I stepped into the batter's box feeling confident, I was so much more likely to get a base hit compared to if I stepped in there feeling like I would strike out. The same thing applies in medicine. Before you go into that patient's room to do surgery or evaluate their rash, take a deep breath and visualize a successful outcome. Or take five minutes in your morning routine and visualize your day going as you hope. If this positive visualization can help people get better at free throws and basketball, it can definitely help us all become better providers for our patients and in turn give us more joy it can help us find our grand zone. All right, thanks for joining today. I wanna thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students in residence with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the GrenZone.
0: This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The GrenZone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.